Thank you, John, and a privilege for my wife, Ellie, and me to be with you folks again. And uh, we've got a big bill to, to cover here, how to squeeze 12 chapters into about five sessions and everything. So hang on. I'm going to go as quickly as I can and try to hit all the, the highlights of, of the different chapters and everything. And if you want more detail, we have a commentary over here, the Most High God that's on Daniel, which will fill in all the gaps and everything. But I'd point out to you that the theme of the book of Daniel is the sovereign rule of God. That's the theme of the book of Daniel. And its key verse along those lines is in chapter 4, verse 17. And this is what it says. In order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will. Indicating God is in sovereign control of everything here upon planet Earth. He can raise up rulers, tear down rulers according to his sovereign purposes. The introduction really to the whole book is in chapter 1 of Daniel. And uh, we find out that in August of 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, who was the crown prince of Babylon, took control of Jerusalem. His father, who was the king of Babylon, died August 15, 16, when Nebuchadnezzar was there in Jerusalem. As a result of that, Nebuchadnezzar rushed home to claim the throne uh, before some imposter would come in and take it because he was the crown prince, so the throne was supposed to be his. He took with him some of the cream of the crop of Jewish young men, one of whom was Daniel, and when they got there, they changed their names, and so their Babylonian names for his three friends were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The Hebrew text indicates that these young men were 15 to 20 years of age. That was their age bracket, mainly uh, teenagers that were carried there. And uh, so they were taken captive to Babylon, and they were placed in the royal training school for three years of intensive training by the wise men of Babylon. And the goal of that was to train the, them to be scholars of, out of the scholars of Babylon, to train these young men to eventually become officials uh, in the palace of the king at that time, now King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, when he left Jerusalem to go to Babylon, not only took these young men with him, but he also took sacred vessels from God's temple there in Jerusalem over to Babylon, and he placed those sacred vessels in the, the temple of the chief Babylonian god whose name was Marduk. He purposely did that to humiliate Israel's god, in essence, to say to the world, our God is greater than the God of Israel. He didn't realize it, but he's giving God a tremendous opportunity to prove just the reverse of what he was claiming. God enabled Daniel and his friends through that training program to surpass all the other students. When they came in for their final exam before Nebuchadnezzar, none of the other men measured up to their abilities and their knowledge and all the rest. And as a result, they were advanced to government positions within Nebuchadnezzar's government. That's the introduction uh, to the book of Daniel. Now, the next section of Daniel is really in chapters 2 through 12, the rest of the book. And what's being demonstrated now from chapter 2 through chapter 12 is God's sovereign rule 
in the kingdom of men. God's sovereign rule in the kingdom of men. That's what's going on in the rest of the book of Daniel. And uh, when we come to chapters 2 through 7, chapters 2 through 7 of Daniel, God's sovereign rule over the Gentiles is demonstrated. Then when you get to chapters 8 through 12, it's going to be a sovereign rule over Israel. But in chapters 2 through 7, God's sovereign rule over the Gentiles demonstrated. And, uh, and so it's God's sovereign rule over Gentile empires demonstrated, again, in chapters 2 through 7. In chapter 2, which again, is God in a kind of a, a nutshell, was going to demonstrate conclusively his sovereign rule over the, over the Gentile empires. When you come to chapter uh, 2, chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that greatly disturbed him tremendously. He couldn't figure out what it was all about. And that was in 603 B.C., according to ancient records. And he demanded that his wise men tell him both the content of the dream as well as the interpretation of the dream. Now, before that, when he had a dream, he called the wise men in. He'd tell them the content and then ask for the interpretation. But apparently he wanted to test them out to make sure that they weren't making up things to make him happy in the interpretation. This time he said, you tell me the content as well as, as the interpretation of the dream. And the wise men couldn't do either of those things whatsoever. And it was impossible for them. And so they told the king that he was unreasonable to require this. No great ruler had ever demanded such a thing of his wise men. Well, that didn't fit his pride. So in a fit of rage, he ordered all the wise men to be torn apart, literally limb from limb, and all of their houses converted into public restrooms, which in that, in that uh, area of the world was one of the worst things, most humiliating things could be done for you, for your home to be turned into a public restroom for people to, c to come and use at their own will. In light of this, Daniel, because he and his friends were now tied in with the wise men, if they couldn't do this for the king, they were going to be ripped apart as well. And so Daniel requested of one of the high officials to go to King Nebuchadnezzar and ask him to grant Daniel a period of time and by the end of that period of time, Daniel would come and fulfill what the king had demanded. And so the king agreed to that. And so Daniel rushed home, and he and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had an emergency prayer meeting because their lives were at stake. And they asked God to reveal the dream and the interpretation to Daniel, and that's exactly what God did to Daniel. And so then uh, God, when Daniel came in before Nebuchadnezzar, he said to him that the king had demanded something that was humanly impossible to fulfill, just as his wise men said. But he said that to lay the foundation. Only the God, only the God in heaven could do this. Reveal the content and also the interpretation of your dream. Now, one of the reasons he keeps emphasizing the God of heaven is because, according to ancient records, the Babylonians believed that all their gods came from the earth, actually out of a mountain. They believed that all their gods came out of a mountain here upon planet earth. So Daniel wants to make it very clear. What I'm going to share with you now 
is from the God of heaven. He wants to drive home to Nebuchadnezzar. There's only one true and living God who actually exists, and that's the God of Israel, the God of heaven. And so in chapter 2, verses 31 to 45, Daniel reveals the content of the dream and begins to interpret it in chapter 2, verses 31 to 45. And there were two major objects in the dream. The first one was a huge image that was human in form. And then the second object in the dream was a stone, a stone that we'll talk about later on. When Daniel interprets the image, he starts at the top, at the head, and he progressively works his way down piece by piece by piece. It's important to note that as he's doing that, he is showing that God is revealing the whole future course of Gentile world dominion from Daniel's day right up until the time that Messiah would come to set up God's kingdom here upon planet Earth. So he starts with the, with the head of gold, and he makes it clear to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold represents you as the king of Babylon, but it also represents your Babylonian kingdom. Now what's intriguing is this. God purposely portrayed the Babylonian king with gold for a couple of reasons. Number one, according to the Babylonians, their chief god, Marduk, they called the god of gold, the god of gold. In addition, the Babylonians were notorious for using incredible amounts of gold. They made all kind of images out of gold. They even covered whole walls of, of buildings, even royal palaces with gold leaf. In fact, uh, several centuries later, when a, a Greek scholar came over to Babylon, he was absolutely astounded. Everywhere you look, there's gold, there's gold, there's gold, there's gold. And so God was very accurately portraying the Babylonian kingdom as the, the kingdom of gold. That represented the Babylonian kingdom that was the great world power when Daniel was there before King Nebuchadnezzar. But now he moves down to the, the trunk, or if you want to, if you want to say the, the breast with two arms coming together on each side, and that breast was made out of silver. Now this was God's way of portraying what the next great Gentile world empire would be that would conquer Babylon and replace Babylon. And the two arms coming together to form one chest equaled two different national groups of people, the Medes and the Persians, the Medes and the Persians. They were separate kingdoms for a period of time, but in the near future, after Daniel being there before Nebuchadnezzar, those two kingdoms were going to merge together to form what became known as the Medo-Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. And so this was God's way of foretelling, first there's going to be Babylon as a great Gentile kingdom, but then the next one after Babylon is going to be the Medo-Persian Empire or kingdom. And why was it represented by silver? Well, according to ancient records, silver, back in those ancient times, represented money, money. And it's a fact of history. The Medo-Persian kings, they built a tremendous highway system throughout their massive kingdom. And the main reason they did that was so that the tax collectors could get out through every nook and cranny of that kingdom and get the taxes that the Medo-Persian emperors were demanding other people to pay. And so God, for that reason, was telling very accurately the second great kingdom 
would be one that has a great emphasis upon money, money, and so used silver to represent that. That part of the dream was fulfilled in 539 B.C. because in 539 B.C., as we'll see later on, Medo-Persia conquered Babylon and now assimilated Babylon into its growing, massive Medo-Persian kingdom there in that part of the world. Now, Daniel, as he's moving down on the figure here, the statue, comes to the belly and thighs that are made out of bronze. The belly and thighs that are made out of bronze. And that, the belly represented Greece. See, it's, it's one belly, not two divisions of the belly. One belly, that represented Greece, which would be the next great Gentile world empire, unified under Alexander the Great, under Alexander the Great. And the two thighs, why one belly but then two thighs? As you may know, Alexander the Great, just within about three or four years after he conquered with his Greek troops, this massive Medo-Persian empire, Alexander died very quickly. He was about 33 years of age when he died out there. There wasn't another man within the Grecian kingdom of the ability to uh, exercise rule and organize things as Alexander the Great. And because there was no man within the Grecian kingdom to replace him, his four leading generals subdivided the big Grecian kingdom into four divisions. However, only two of those divisions ended up having any significance in history beyond the time when they conquered Medo-Persia. And one of those divisions was headquartered in Egypt, south of Israel. The other of the significant of the, the four divisions was Syria, directly north of Israel. Same nation of Egypt and Syria we hear about in the news today, at uh, this particular time. And so since God knew only two divisions of the four those generals would subdivide Alexander's Grecian kingdom would be significant, God very accurately ahead of time portrayed the one belly under Alexander's rule but then the two major divisions that would have great significance after Alexander the Great would die there in that, in that part of the world. Then, as Daniel's going down on the image, he comes to the legs of iron. Uh, legs of iron, and then feet and toes, a mixture of iron and clay. Iron and clay. The two legs uh, are representing the next great Gentile kingdom or empire that would develop after Greece, and we know historically that was Rome. That was Rome. In fact, the Romans conquered the Grecian kingdom in 146 B.C. Now, those areas of the ancient world were under Roman rule. But why uh, two legs for the ancient Roman Empire? Well, by the 300s A.D., when Emperor Constantine was the emperor. The Roman Empire was so expansive, all of Western Europe, all of Eastern Europe as well, that it was almost impossible to uh, exercise effective rule over those massive areas. So Constantine decided to divide the ancient Roman Empire into two parts. The, the Western Empire in Western Europe had the city of Rome as its capital city. But then the eastern half, which today would be Turkey, where Turkey is located today, Constantine had a new capital city built for the eastern half and called it Constantinople 
after Empire Constantine. And so God knew ahead of time that's what was going to happen when the Roman Empire came to its largest expanse, it would be subdivided into two divisions there. But why iron in those legs? Well, the implication is that uh, iron is very strong. By the way, the Greeks, the belly and thighs were represented by bronze, and the Greeks were the ones who really developed bronze extensively for their military hardware. But now when Rome came into power, they developed iron, which was much stronger than bronze, could penetrate uh, through the Greek shields of bronze and everything else, and God knew that, so he portrays it in the form of iron with tremendous power and destructive power, and that Rome could crush and shatter the ancient world, is what God was saying when it would come into power. Again, 146 BC, it conquered the Grecian kingdom, but then, finally, in the image, are the feet and toes, which are a mixture of iron and clay. This, and we're going to see later on uh, when we get to chapter 7, which is parallel to the image here in chapter 2, that in, there's going to be a revived form of the Roman Empire that's going to develop at the end of Gentile world dominion upon planet Earth. And it will still have tremendous strength so there's iron there in the feet and, and, and toes, indicating that in its final form, a revived Roman Empire, it'll have tremendous military strength and power to dominate the world. But there's clay mixed together with the toes and the feet. And clay and iron don't naturally adhere to each other. And this was God's way of foretelling that in the last form of this revived Roman Empire, it would be subdivided into ten divisions, ten toes, ten divisions. And we're going to see that even more clearly when we come to Daniel chapter 7. Ten divisions, federated together for a power and influence, but with ten equal co-rulers at the same time. Now, the last thing in the dream, as we mentioned earlier, was a stone. That all of a sudden in this dream, while Nebuchadnezzar is looking at this huge image, there's a stone cut out of the side of a mountain upon planet Earth. And that stone comes and it, it just pummels the feet of this image. And as a result, the whole image just collapses into very, very fine particles and all the rest. And then a wind comes and blows away every remnant of that great image. Now, what's interesting again is this. As I mentioned before, the Babylonians believed that uh, the gods came out of a mountain, came out of the side of a mountain. They also believed that wind is a divine activity. And God, knowing that was their thinking, he's demonstrating to them that when God is done, the God of heaven is done with Gentile world empires, he's going to have Gentile world empires shattered by this stone. But because they believed that uh, gods came out of a mountain, and this stone comes out of the mountain, that was God's way of trying to drive home, there's another god who's going to destroy all the remnants of Gentile world power upon planet Earth. And as he was watching that dream, that stone grew and grew and grew until it became a huge mountain that filled the entire Earth. This was God's way of foretelling to Nebuchadnezzar 
After the God of heaven, Daniel's God, is done with Gentile world power, he is going to establish his kingdom upon planet Earth. Upon planet Earth. It's going to be a divine ordained kingdom here upon planet Earth, referring to the future millennial kingdom that God had already been foretelling, you know, to the Jewish people and everything in the Old Testament scriptures. And with the, the stone, first of all, it comes out and uh, it crushes. Gentile world dominion gets rid of it. Interestingly, what's intriguing is this. Jesus, twice in the Bible, is called the stone. It's called the stone. And the Babylonians connected their kingdoms with their God, their chief God, and this was God's way of foretelling that in the future, God has the last great king for planet Earth, and that's going to be the Messiah. And when he comes to planet Earth, he's going to crush and get rid of Gentile world dominion under the Antichrist and, and all the rest. And then he's going to set up God's kingdom here upon planet Earth to fill the whole earth, that the whole world, for the last thousand years of its history, will be ruled over by God's Son. It'll be the God of heaven, Israel's God, that's going to restore his kingdom rule to planet Earth in the future. Well, as a result of all this, if you want the references for Jesus being called the stone, Matthew 21, verses 33 to 45, Matthew 21, verses 33 to 45, and 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Jesus is called the stone. Nebuchadnezzar was so astounded of the accuracy, at least of the content of the dream, and Daniel's interpretation, he gave Daniel great gifts to honor him, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. Now, the kingdom of Babylon had several provinces, but the, the province of Babylon would be where the capital city is and some of the surrounding area. And he also appointed Daniel to be the head over all the wise men. Here's this kind of a young upstart, now is appointed by the king to be in authority over the men who had taught him uh, there when he went through the, the training session together with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So, what was being demonstrated there was God's sovereign rule over Gentile rule and kingdoms during the, the future course of world history. Now we come to chapter 3. And what's portrayed in chapter 3 is God's rule over Gentile punishment demonstrated. God's rule over Gentile punishment demonstrated. And you're probably very familiar with this about Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego going into the fiery furnace. But when you come to the opening part of Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar had a gigantic, a gigantic image made that, according to ancient records, converted into our way of measuring today, was about 90 feet high. Now they claim that probably that included a large uh, stool for it to, to stand upon, but it was a huge image but the, and it was nine feet wide, but notice this one is all gold. Why do you think Nebuchadnezzar wanted an image that's all gold instead of just a head of gold, you know, on the image in his dream? I think this was his way of saying, Daniel, your God is wrong. Babylon's never going to fall to other kingdoms at all. And so I'm demonstrating that by making this image 
from the head down to the feet and toes of nothing but gold. That was his way of showing his contempt for what God had revealed uh, actually to the dream. Now, once that was erected, according to uh, chapter 3 of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar required all the chief officers, all the chief officers of his kingdom to be present on the day that they were going to dedicate that image for the honor of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian kingdom. Now, instantly, Daniel wasn't there. We don't know why, and all we can figure is maybe uh, he had already been sent somewhere else within the kingdom on important business, more important than his being there. But Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, were there on that day of dedication. And all the officers that were there were commanded to fall down with their face to the ground to worship the image at a given signal, at a given signal. And Nebuchadnezzar made it very clear, if any of my officers fail to bow down and worship that image, death is going to take place for you. You're going to be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire, of blazing fire. By the way, according to Jeremiah 29, verse 22, that was one of the favorite ways of Babylonian kings punishing people who disobeyed them. They would be burnt to death in a blazing fire. Well, now Daniel's three friends have a dilemma. Because if they were to bow down and worship that image, they would thereby violate the first two of God's Ten Commandments for the people of Israel. And now they're in a struggle. What do we do? If we obey the king, then we disobey God. They're going to be subject to God's wrath. If in order to avoid God's wrath, we disobey the king, then we're going to be subject to his wrath. Can you imagine the predicament they were confronted with? Well, by God's grace, Daniel's friends refused to worship the image. And Nebuchadnezzar was so enraged by that that he declared to them that the, the furnace would be fired so heavily, be so hot. Now notice the language, that no God would be able to deliver you. He did not, again, he was handing God a tremendous opportunity. There is a God who can deliver under these kind of situations. But that's what he said to Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego when they refused to bow down. No God will be able to deliver you from that fiery furnace. And they still said, we must obey God rather than man. And that enraged him that the Hebrew text says that Nebuchadnezzar's face got distorted with rage. He was so angry with these young upstarts. And so what he did was he ordered the furnace to be heated seven times more intense than it normally would be to guarantee these young upstarts won't come out of there alive whatsoever. Then he picked his strongest soldiers to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in such a way that there's no way they could stand up on their own or walk around whatsoever. And uh, then he ordered those men to throw them into the furnace. Now, according to ancient records, the Babylonian furnaces were much like a modern-day lime kiln. Kind of maybe almost looked like a, a bee hut, you know, big around at the bottom and kind of come up... Uh, around at the top, but an opening at the top by which they could drop things down into the fire that were to be burned, and there was a ramp from the ground level that would go right up to that opening at the top so that 
those who want to burn something could walk up there and drop the things down in. Then, on, down at ground level, on the side of that, was an open door so that whenever things would be burned and the fire was over, they could remove all the ashes. And so in light of this, when Nebuchadnezzar decides to have these young upstarts, these Hebrew young men, uh, burned in the fire, he had a portable throne that he sat upon so that he could look right through that bottom door and rejoice over seeing these three Jewish men perish in the fire. Well, <laughs> it didn't work out the way Nebuchadnezzar decided that it would be or planned it to be. Uh, interesting thing, keep in mind, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown in with flammable clothing. Flammable clothing. In addition, uh, when, and they were bound so tightly, there was no way they could move on their own when they'd be dropped down in there, so there's no way they could run out of the fire in a hurry if they could. But when the soldiers dragged them up that ramp to drop them in, when they dropped them in, the blast of heat came out so strongly it killed those soldiers right on the spot. All this emphasizing the deadly circumstance for those Jewish young men. Well, while Nebuchadnezzar's sitting there looking in, he saw five things that startled him, according to the record in Daniel chapter 3. The, the first thing that startled him was there were four persons in that fire. And he said to his other men, didn't we throw three in there? Yeah. Well, there's a fourth one in there. Where did that, where'd that person come from? The next thing that startled him was None of them were bound. The, the Jewish young men were no longer bound, hand and, and foot, anymore. And on top of that, a uh, third thing, all four of them were walking around. They weren't even trying to get out of the fire. They are just walking around uh, inside the fire there, and none of them were lying down, which you would have thought with Shadrach, Meshach dropped in with their feet bound, they probably would have flopped right over when they, when they hit the bottom of it, but none of them were lying down, and the fourth thing that startled him was all four of them were not hurt. They were, they were just walking around in there, almost like they were enjoying what was going on <laughs> inside that fire. All four of them were unhurt. And then the fifth thing that startled him, and this is what he said, one looked like a son of the gods, plural. That fourth person there, he said, looks like a son of the gods. Babylonians, according to their theology, believed that their gods had sons. Ancient records indicate that. And this was Nebuchadnezzar's pagan way of saying that that fourth person looked like a divine or supernatural being. A divine or supernatural being. Uh, later, in verse 28, he said to his other uh, cohorts outside the fiery furnace, he said that that fourth person, it must be that God sent his angel, sent his angel. Now again, to ancient Babylonian records, the word translated angel was also used for deity, for deity. And so the question is, who was that fourth person? Was it an angel or was it the Lord Jesus in one of his pre-incarnate appearances coming in there to protect those three young men who were willing to die for the honor and glory of the true and the living God. 
the God of heaven. Well, when Osavius and Nebuchadnezzar, they weren't going to die, he called them out. And he, he referred to them as servants of the Most High God. He began to get the impression now there is a God that's higher than our Babylonian gods, the Most High God. And the, all the officials hurried up and gathered around Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego to look at them. And there were uh, four things that amazed them. Number one, their bodies weren't blistered, weren't blistered at all from the intense heat. Number two, their hair wasn't singed at all. Number three, their clothing was not scorched at all. And finally, there wasn't even any smell of smoke on their bodies. Again, here was God's demonstrating his sovereign rule over Gentile punishment, over Gentile punishment. And so Nebuchadnezzar praised the God of Israel. He praised the Jewish men for their faith and devotion to their God. And he decreed that anyone who would say anything offensive against their God would be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, is what he said to all of his people within his kingdom. If any of you says anything negative about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this is what's going to be done to you. He's getting more and more the idea of who this God of Israel is and his tremendous power and ability and authority. And that brings us to chapter 4 of Daniel, where we have God's rule over Gentile kings demonstrated. God's rule over Gentile kings demonstrated in chapter 4. The unique thing about this chapter is Nebuchadnezzar is the one who wrote that chapter. He states that very clearly. And apparently, uh, God had those who were, you know, writing the scripture and everything to take his, his own words word for word, and incorporate it now as this chapter in in the book of Daniel. In chapter 4, verses 14 to 18, we have the record that Nebuchadnezzar had a greatly disturbing dream. Here's another greatly disturbing dream that he had. It portrayed a great tree, great in size, that grew up to heaven. It grew up to heaven. It was so huge. And it provided lodging and food for animals and people. This great tree provided lodging and food for animals and people. There was a heavenly being, probably an angel, that appeared in his dream. It descended from heaven, and it commanded that this tree be cut down, that the tree be cut down, leaving only the stump in the ground. All the rest of it is to be removed, but leave the stump in the ground. Then the angel commanded that the stump was to be bound with a band of iron and bronze, a band of iron and bronze. And finally, it commanded that its heart be changed from a man's heart to a beast's heart, a wild animal's heart. Change the heart in the stump from a man's heart to a wild beast's heart. And do that for seven periods of time for seven periods of time. Now, here we go. Nebuchadnezzar calls in his wise men again to interpret the stream for them. And uh, 
again, they strike out. And so he remembers Daniel, who'd been able to interpret the previous dream, and so he calls in Daniel, calls in Daniel to interpret that dream. And here's what we find, this is what we're told in the scriptures, the purpose uh, of this was to teach mankind, to teach mankind that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men. Here's where we have chapter 4, verse 17, which I said was the key verse. To teach mankind that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of mankind, and he gives it to whomever he wills, to whomever he wills, and sets over it the lowliest of men, the lowliest of men. Very interesting, according to ancient Babylonian records, Nebuchadnezzar's father, who had been the king before Nebuchadnezzar, said that he was a nobody. Apparently, uh, before he became king, he was a nobody within the Babylonian society. And we don't know how, as a result of that, that he actually became the king of this Babylonian kingdom. And so what we're told here is the purpose of, of the command was to teach mankind that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of mankind, and to whomever he wills, he sets over it the lowliest of men. The lowliest of men. Nebuchadnezzar's reaction was, uh, he told uh, the content uh, to the wise men and asked for interpretation. But even though they knew the content, they couldn't come up with a plausible interpretation of what this all meant. And so Nebuchadnezzar gets Daniel to come in and interpret it for him, just like he did back there in chapter 2. When Daniel received from God the meaning of this, he was so shocked and perplexed. He said to Nebuchadnezzar, I wish the fulfillment of this is not against you, but against some of your enemies. Almost forewarning Nebuchadnezzar, this is not going to be a good one for you personally, uh, what's going to happen here. He didn't want to tell Nebuchadnezzar the meaning for that. But he pointed out the large tree that provided food and lodging for animals and men and, and people represented Nebuchadnezzar. The large tree that provided food for human beings and animals represented King Nebuchadnezzar. And again, uh, for some historical information we have from ancient records of what Nebuchadnezzar had inscribed and all the rest, we understand why God portrayed him this way. For two reasons. Number one, in inscriptions that Nebuchadnezzar had developed during his reign there in Babylon, he boasted about the peaceful shelter and abundance of food that he provided for the subjects of his kingdom. They have uncovered, archaeologists have uncovered those inscriptions where he boasted of the peaceful shelter and abundance of food that he provided. Then, secondly, on his military expeditions over into the land of Lebanon, where the country of Lebanon is right now, north of, of Israel and everything, he was totally captivated by the huge cedar trees of the land of Lebanon, Nebuchadnezzar was. To his way of thinking, those huge uh, cedar trees were the greatest living thing as far as vegetation was concerned upon planet Earth. And he was so intrigued by it captivated by it, that uh, he himself took an axe to cut down 
one of the, the largest of these cedar trees. Again, to demonstrate, I can have authority, in essence, over them. And he was so proud over that that he boasted about that in some inscriptions that he cut down uh, one of these trees, in fact, maybe more than one, with his own hands, and he had inscribed in stone a picture of him flailing away with an axe at this giant cedar tree of Lebanon and knocking it to the ground. And so in light of that, God portrays to him this dream as a form of a great tree with great branches that reach out with food and shelter for animals and human life here upon planet Earth. And so the interpretation of the dream was this. The cutting down of the tree equaled God would remove Nebuchadnezzar from his office of king. God was going to cut him down and remove him from his office of king. The stump that was left in the ground was bound with a metal band. That represented that God would bind Nebuchadnezzar with a form of mental illness. That's how he would cut him down and remove him from office as king for a period of time. That he would be bound with a form of mental illness. And through that mental illness, he would act like a wild beast. So much so, they'd, they'd have to drive him out of the palace and outside of the city of Babylon, the capital city of Babylon, to live out of doors in all kinds of weather and indicated that the hair and his head would get matted. He would eat grass like a wild animal on all fours, act just like a wild animal. By the way, uh, other people have had that kind of experience, according to medical records. And they have a technical name for it, lycanthropy. Lycanthropy, where a human being actually begins living and acting like a wild animal. And they, they can't even kind of reason or think as, as a human being. God did this to Nebuchadnezzar uh, to teach him a lesson. Now, the stump left in the ground uh, signified that God would restore the kingdom to Nebuchadnezzar after he would acknowledge that the God of Israel is sovereign over all of mankind. So that he said that this would last until he would acknowledge that the God of Israel is sovereign over all the kingdom of mankind. And once Nebuchadnezzar would do that, then God would release him from that and restore him back to the throne again. And from what... Uh, medical records of lycanthropy is, even though the person that's under that influence is acting like a wild animal, they can still think in their minds and think in their minds. And that's why he would be able, after a while, to acknowledge the fact that it's Daniel's God, the God of Israel, that is sovereign over all of mankind here upon planet Earth. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar wrote chapter 4, of Daniel, he admitted that what the dream portrayed actually happened one year after he had that dream from God. One year after he had that dream from God. And he, he explained the situation in which that happened. He was walking on the roof of one of the royal palaces there in the capital city of Babylon. And apparently it was the palace that was at the highest elevation 
And from that vantage point, he could have a whole panoramic view all around him of this magnificent capital city of Babylon. And so he, he was walking on the roof of one of the royal palaces, looking over the great capital city of Babylon. And while he was doing that, he boasted. He boasted that he himself, he's taken all the glory for this, that he himself had made Babylon the greatest city on earth by the might of his own power and to glorify himself. That's what he's saying. I made this magnificent capital city by the might of my own power and for my glory and for my glory. Now, what's incredible is there are 49 building inscriptions that archaeologists have uncovered that Nebuchadnezzar had inscribed, and each one of them was because of one major building project that he ordained to be carried out while he was king. And on most of the bricks of all the buildings and walls of that city were inscribed this statement, I am Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I am Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And all the bricks of the city, archaeologists have uncovered that. Here's some of the building activity. He took his father's royal palace, which was fairly old, and he had it totally rebuilt. Then he wasn't satisfied with just that one. He had two more royal palaces built within the city as well. He had 17 religious temples built during his reign there at Babylon. Then he had two great walls built the whole way around the outer perimeter of that city. The outer wall was so thick there were no battering rams that could knock a hole through it or begin to knock it down whatsoever. And then there was a space between it and then the second wall that was inside the space of the outside wall. And in, in that one, he had all kinds of towers built into it where his spearmen and his archers could be in there. And knowing that when an enemy would come, they couldn't penetrate through that, the outer wall, even with the battering ram, that would force the attacking soldiers to climb up over that wall. Then they'd have to jump down the open space between that and the next wall, and then run like crazy and try to scale that second wall. And while they're doing that, his archers and spearmen could be up there just picking off these soldiers one after another after another. It made it so that it'd be absolute suicide for an enemy force to try to conquer that city because of those great walls and everything he put around there. Then he had canals dug from one end of the city to the other. And he did that so that businessmen had businesses could easily carry on trade with one another by boat, going from their business to another part of the city to deliver what the other uh, business person wanted from what this one was producing. And uh, he, he just made it like the, the Venice <laughs> of ancient Babylon back in those days, or, or Lauderdale in, in Florida, you know, with all the canals and all the rest uh, for this. And one of the greatest building activities was the famous Ishtar Gate. And they have remains of that. It's absolutely gorgeous. Huge gate, the major gate going in and out of that city. And he had a beautiful colored tile put all over it, uh, symbolizing lions and everything else, again, for the glory of him. But the greatest building feat was the palace that had the famous hanging gardens 
on top of that roof. And there's a fascinating story behind that. You know, in order to uh, have good relations with other kings of other kingdoms, he would often marry the royal princess of this other king. And so he had married the royal princess of the king of Media that later on would become part of Medo-Persia that would conquer Babylon. He married that royal princess. Well, where she lived in Media, there were magnificent mountains and forests growing in those mountains and all the rest. When she came to Babylon, you could look out anywhere you could. You couldn't see a mountain. You couldn't see trees. It was like a flat pancake. And she was so uh, disturbed by that and homesick for her home country, she was advocating she was going to break off the marriage with, with him and go back home. And for him, that would be embarrassing before the whole world. He didn't dare allow that to happen. So, okay, if she wants mountains and forests, we'll get them for her. And so he got his engineers together and commanded them to build a tremendous temple with tremendous support things supporting the roof of it. Then they literally brought in rocks and stone and built mountains on top of that thing, and they planted trees upon them. Well, it's one thing to do that, but how are you going to keep it watered so the trees will continue growing? Archaeologists, again, have uncovered ruins of that palace, and they saw that in all the support pillars holding all the tremendous weight of tons, everything of that roof, each one of them was hollow. And they had to develop a hydraulic system because when he built the walls around the city, he built them over the Euphrates River. So the Euphrates River was running right through the city all the time. And they had a whole plumbing system by which they could bring water out of the Euphrates River. And with a hydraulic system, they'd bring it up to the roof and water the mountains and the vegetation just to please this wife. That was called one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was such an ingenious thing that was built there. So he could understand why when he was up, and maybe, maybe that was a temp, the uh, palace he was on top of, I was looking over the city that night and said, isn't this the great city of Babylon that I built through my might for my glory? What he records when he wrote chapter 4 of Daniel, when he made that claim, all of a sudden there was a voice from heaven that said, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty is removed from you. And instantly, immediately, this mental illness hit him. And he was literally driven from his throne to live in the open fields, to live like a wild animal. But he still had inner consciousness that when he finally came to the point where he could swallow his pride and acknowledge that the God of Israel was sovereign in the affairs of men and set up and tear down rulers according to God's sovereign rule. Once he did that, God restored him uh, to human thinking. And then he put out a tremendous decree, and you ought to read it sometime. It's, it's incredible from this pagan man what he said about the God of Israel, that he is sovereign in control of mankind and everything upon planet Earth. And he sets up over even the basis, the lowliest of men, if that's his sovereign will, over kingdoms here upon planet Earth. Now, John, are we supposed to take a break for right now? Okay. <laughs>